Welcome. My name is Steve. Uh, I am the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us this morning uh, virtually. I want to assure you that uh, we are um, following best practices here. We, we only have the people in this room who absolutely need to be here. We are, to the best of our ability, maintaining a six-foot per- perimeter um, and uh, using a lot of hand sanitizer and washing our hands. Uh, I hope that uh, y'all are, are practicing the same. So welcome, welcome. I do want to let you know about a few things that are going to be some important resources to you during this season. Um, the first, for Trailhead Kids, uh, in order to help make this an, an, an active and engaging um, uh, worship service and, and, and to help continue to lead your kids um, in, in worship, uh, our Trailhead Kids team has made resources available to you. All you need to do is go to facebook.com, as long as the entire site hasn't crashed, and Trailhead Kids Edwardsville is what you're going to tack onto the end of it and look for, and uh, you're going to be able to access the current week's lesson. Uh, they're going to be posting videos, activity pages, lesson plans for all age groups as a way to help you to continue to engage your kids in, uh, in this, and they're going to be, um, they, last week they were sharing photos on their page and, and just creating a sense of community among our families. Um, so I would encourage you to connect with that because it's a great way to stay connected during this season of forced disconnection. Secondly, I want to let you know about some resources on our homepage, our website, trailheadonline.org. If you go there, there is a button uh, for prayer requests. We are uh, actively seeking to pray with you and for you during this season of time. And we're looking for ways to, to help our entire community to engage one another in, in prayer. And so uh, if you hit that prayer link button, um, you'll have an opportunity to submit prayer requests. You can decide if you want them just to go to the leadership of Trailhead or if you would like them pushed out for the entire church community to be praying over. There's also on that link ways for you to let us know about some of your needs. Uh, if you are in a spot where you need the church to come alongside you, uh, to aid you, to walk with you, um, let us know, please. Those links are are there. There's also a link for our weekly update. Uh, we're trying to figure out, like this is just new, and you guys know this. We're just trying to figure out how do we best come alongside our community and continue to engage. I've started putting together a, uh, a weekly email that is a whole list of resources, from spiritual encouragement to family resources to uh, to other things like that. And, and that, that email from last week is posted on our website at that link. And, uh, and if you sign up, uh, you can get that on a weekly basis. All right, this morning, we are going back to the book of Romans. Um, man, it feels like a lifetime ago uh, since we were in this book. It was last fall and, and the beginning of 2020. The last week has been a really long year. Um, But over the course of of Romans so far, in the first three chapters, um, Paul has exposed our need to create us-them paradigms. That that it is a a human proclivity, that that we are um, inclined, right? We all do it, and we all do it all the time. Us-them. And us is always the good guys, and them is always the bad guys, right? Uh, And if you don't believe me, let me just ask you this. uh, How do you feel about people who aren't social distancing right now? How do you feel? Like, you've been been in quarantine for what, 48 hours? 
and, uh, and, and there's already this whole wealth of self-righteousness that is built up against these people, these people, who, right? I saw people last week who at the beginning of the week were making fun of people who were self-quarantining, us, them, right? Look at us over here, we're the ones in the know, right? I, I read somebody on Facebook, my buddy who I used to drink with all the time, and he told me that, that this thing's a joke. And so we're over here, we're the us. And by the end of the week, they were self they were, they were self-quarantining and, 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 and self-righteously condemning everybody who wasn't. You know what I'm saying? Like, like us, them. You can do it about everything, y'all. Right? The us, them. Some of you, it's, it's your work ethic. I had a woman tell me one time, man, I get more done by 5 a.m. than you do all day long. And I was like, you're probably right, right? But, but that, there's, there's this sense, right? Some of you, it's your moral behavior right? Yeah, I sin, but I don't sin like them. For some of you, it is, it is your social activism. I, I am absolutely engaged in ways others aren't. I am an ally. I am, I am engaged. I am, right? For some of you, it is, it is technical knowledge of a specific field of academia, whether it's the Bible or, or your field of study, medical knowledge, law, um, social media. I don't know. For some of you, it's your six-pack abs, Let's be honest, man. You just you just love that you're in shape and 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 you work so so hard, right? Um, us, them, us, them, and and as a result of these us them paradigms, you have a need to clothe yourself with whatever it is that makes you us and whatever it is that keeps them them, right? You're clothing yourself, you're covering yourself, and to use a religious term, with righteousness. Whatever it is that makes you us is your righteousness. It's what makes you right in your own eyes and what you think should make you right in the eyes of others, right? And what this means is that you clothe yourself in your boast. Now, we don't like to use that term, right? We don't like to use that term, but, but you clothe yourself of whatever it is that you think makes you worthy of, of admiration, of respect, of love, of people looking up to you. It is your boast, right? Now, here's the thing. We all create us-them paradigms, which means that we all have a boast, even if we're only boasting to ourselves. Even if we're not obnoxiously loud and it's just a quiet voice in the back of our mind affirming or condemning us or affirming or condemning others. Now, this, this, this topic may not seem incredibly relevant right now, with everything we've got going on, you're like, seriously, Steve, you're going to be talking about boasting? I can't even leave my house, right? Um, here's the thing. It is not only relevant. I think um, some of us may be in a place of vulnerability that we might be able to hear this in some ways for the first time. That this might, in fact, find an openness in our heart that at other times we wouldn't. Because here's what I want you to catch, and this is the big idea for this week. Your boast is, is either going to kill your faith or your faith is going to kill your boast because they cannot coexist. All right, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 21 through uh, chapter 4, verse 8. And so grab your Bibles. I'm going to be reading it. Uh, I would love for you to be reading along. The text today is actually 27 through 4, 8. But I want to include that paragraph that we just spent five weeks in. Because that's the hinge, right? That's the hinge that this whole thing turns on. And so I want to remind you of the key ideas there. I'm going to start in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at this present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so in our passage, boasting is clearly the, the central idea. Now, the central idea, of course, is, is the fact that justification comes by faith and faith alone. But, but the reason he's digging into this is this issue of boasting, right? We see it right there in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting, right? We see it again at the beginning of chapter four. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Both of these sections are focused on the issue of boasting. So let me ask you, what has become of our boasting? Um, what a strange question, but it's a really relevant one. Here we are in, in America, uh, we, we, we are masters of, of the humble brag. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we like to have our boast, but we don't like to wear it on our sleeve, right? We, we like to be known, but we don't necessarily like to need to assert it. We want people to see it without us having to, to proclaim it or advertise it, right? We're, we're masters of the, the humble brag. Um, this was not true of the ancient world, right? Paul is writing to the Romans, and in Rome, you have both Jews and Gentiles, predominantly Gentiles, but, but you have some Jews in the congregation as well. And both of them would have been very open about their boasting. In their culture, humility was not a virtue. In their culture, this idea of the humble brag, um, you know, like that whole thing, act like you've been here before, that phrase didn't exist, right? That's, that's America. Um, public virtue, they believed, was worthy of public admiration. Public virtue was worthy of public admiration. Romans dreamed of having a statue built of them or having a street named or a precinct that bore their name as a way to, to um, kind of immortally carry forward 
the weight of their honor. It was their boast. They they wanted this public recognition, and those who got it were held in high esteem. The Jews who would who would work really, really hard, right, on their on their religious pedigrees and and on their learning would stand on street corners in, in all of their religious garb, all the businesses going on, and they would pray loudly and publicly to distri- to, to to display um, their their piousness. Right? We look at that and we're like, man, what what, what attention-seeking is going on there, right? What, why, what's going on with that? But for them, it was worthy of praise, right? It was worthy of praise. And, and people who saw them praised them because they were displaying the results of their hard work. Listen, if we are justified, Paul's word, right? If we're declared right by God in the sovereign courts of the universe, If we are justified by grace and grace alone, through faith and faith alone, what happens to our boasting? What happens to that quiet pride that sets us apart and makes us feel superior? Paul says it is excluded. It's excluded. Our boasts, our pride, our perceived strengths are excluded by the principle of faith. It's a matter, y'all. It's a matter of where you're going to put your trust. It's a matter of where you're going to put your faith. See, there's a competing structure here, a competing paradigm. You're either going to put your faith, your trust, in your strength, whatever it is that makes you worthy of praise, admiration, makes you lovable, whatever it is that you think covers you in righteousness. You're either going to put your faith in, in that or you're going to put your faith in Christ. What will justify you? What are you going to lean into to declare you right? Are you going to lean into to what makes you superior? Or are you going to lean into what Christ has done? Verse 28, Paul continues and says, for we hold that the one, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. For we hold that one is justified by faith and faith alone, apart from the works of the law. This was a revolutionary and repulsive idea. To say that there was no difference between us and them was repulsive. For Paul to say that you are not made more worthy by your religious behavior or your self-discipline, by, by your accumulated knowledge, by, by the wall of achievements that are trophies of all of your hard work and diligence and sacrifice, you, by your Protestant work ethic, by, by your intelligence, by your beauty, by your physical strength, all the things that the Jewish world, that the Roman world, that the American culture celebrate as setting you apart and worthy of praise. Of all the things that make you worthy of admiration, of love, of glory, Paul says they're all illusions of strength. They're all illusions of strength. 
and they are all unworthy of your ultimate trust because they are unable to justify you, to declare you right, to clothe you with rightness. They are unable to take you where you want to go before God or before man. It is all an illusion, a comparative illusion in which you are comparing your perceived strengths about other, against other people's perceived weaknesses. It cannot justify you. You guys, this is the gospel. This is the good news that Paul is unpacking and that we hold to, that God is reaching out to us in grace, in undeserved favor, right? God's riches made available to us through Christ's expense, right? We receive this grace, not because we're worthy of it, not because we earn it, not because we work hard for it, not because we fix ourselves, not because we we climb the mountain and get to the top to reach God. We get it because God came down to us and we receive it by This excludes boasting. Where is boasting in this paradox? What are you going to boast about? Right? What are you going to boast about? Now, this leads to a theological dilemma in the Jewish mind. Right? What about our historical covenant relationship with God? What about all of the the promises and and the laws and, and, and the obedience, right? The Jewish... The Jewish person had been completely set aside from the rest of the world through an extremely extensive set of laws that that made them peculiar on the face of the earth, and they did it in order to, to honor their covenant relationship with God. What about the law? Didn't it set us apart? Didn't it do anything special to make us special? Take a look at verses 29 and 30. Paul responds, Is or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He's like, hey guys, I want to remind you of something. Something really, really important that you already know. You're monotheistic, right? The Jews were unique in in all of the ancient world. Every other culture was polytheistic. They believed in regional gods and local gods and gods in competition, The Jews were unique in the ancient world in the sense that they believed in one God, one creator God who was the God of heaven and earth, the God who was over all people at all times. Like, hey, y'all, do you remember that God is the God of all people? And if God is the God of all people, how can he not also provide rescue? for all his people. He reminds them of the Shema, which was their daily prayer they would offer it at the beginning and the end of the day, which comes from Deuteronomy 4, 4 through 6. It was, it was a way to remind themselves on a daily basis, and every day, twice a day, they would pray, Hear, O Israel, that the Lord your God is one. There is one God over heaven and earth. Right? He continues in verse 30, Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. There's a lot going on here. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Of course, circumcision uh, was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Every every Jewish male who was born um, as a son of Abraham or a son of Abraham's son had to be circumcised as a sign that they had received the, the covenant of promise that was given through Abraham. It was then codified in the law. So, so it became this sign that, that if you were under the law, you were circumcised. So they were the circumcised and the rest of the world was, was uncircumcised. It was a sign that you were in 
us, this group of us, you were in the Abrahamic covenant. You were under the Mosaic covenant. You were part of the covenant people of God. And it became a point of pride. It was never intended to be, but it did. And, and what, a, what a strange point of pride. I was thinking about that this week. What a strange thing to be proud of. And I think God did that on purpose. God's like, you want a sign of your covenant relationship with me? Here. <laughs> We're going to cut off some flesh in a really weird spot, and it's going to be awkward. Get proud of that. And they're like, okay, we'll do that. We'll be proud of that. <laughs> uh, Y'all, they did. They did. Uncircumcision, when, when he says that God justifies the circumcised and uncircumcised, you need to catch that that word uncircumcised carried a, 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 a derogatory sense to it. Right? There are a lot of examples in the English language that I'm not going to give you, but you can think of words that would describe people uh, that are different from you, them, in ways that dehumanize them, reduce their value make them less important and less valuable and less significant, right? That's what uncircumcised was. When he, Paul says he, he, he justifies both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, he's poking their pride. He is calling them to dismantle their us-them paradigm by poking their pride. He says they have the same standing before the God of all creation that you have. They also were created by God. There is one God over heaven and earth. You all have the same humanity and you, have the all, you all have the same human problem and you're all justified by grace through faith. Now there is a subtle thing here that I want to point out. He's like, you want, you want a distinction between the circumcised and the circumcised? Here you go. You can have the distinction of a preposition. Right? He will justify the circumcised by faith and he'll justify the uncircumcised through faith. There's your distinction. That's the only distinction you get. They mean the exact same thing. Uh, there's a subtle twist here, though. There's just a subtle, continuing little poke here. You, you are so determined to make sure there's a difference between us and them. All right, here it is. You get a different preposition. There is one God, one universal human need, one universal divine solution. So the obvious question that would arise in the Jewish mind then what happens to the law? Is it nullified? Is it overthrown? What, what happens to the law? Take a look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Now this is a sincere question, y'all. The Jews loved the law. They held to the law. It was not just a point of pride. It was, it was a gift from the God who had given it to them to, to, to set them apart and, and, and to display His character. What happens to the law? This law that God gave us that is good and righteous and holy. What happens to the law? Is it overthrown? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. So what exactly does Paul mean when he says he, he, uh, we uphold the law? Of course, the only way we're going to really know that is by looking at the context. This is not a, a phrase that he uses widely in other places in Scripture, and so we have to look in the book of Romans to, to try to figure out what he means. And some would point us back to Romans chapter, the, the earlier part of Romans chapter 3 in verses 19 and 20, uh, where it talks about how the law speaks to those that are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, 
since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. They would point back and they would say, look, the law was never given to justify. It was given to to show us our sin, and it has done that. And so it's grace's job to justify, so we uphold the law. Because that's what its function was, was to act as a perfect mirror that, that wiped away our blindness, right? It was a set of rules with no ability to obey them. And then when we compared ourselves to them, when we actually tried to improve ourselves through this, this divinely given gift of the Ten Commandments and all the laws that come with it, and we see how far we fall short, we uphold the law by pointing people to grace for justification. The law was never given to justify. And I think that's a good place to begin, but I don't think that's where we end. Because this idea of of how the gospel operates with the law is is an ongoing developing theme through the book of Romans. So I don't want to just point us back. I want to point us forward to Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And I'm going to put these verses on the screen so you can take a look at it. And in Romans 8, Verses 3 and 4, he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So in other words, God's perfect law was perfect, holy, righteous, right? It was, it was good. The problem with the law wasn't the law, it was us. You give an imperfect tool, a perfect tool to an imperfect uh, uh, workman, they're going to produce a flawed result, right? The, the problem was, was us. We were weakened by the flesh, which is Paul's way of saying the, the, the sin that... that uh, that he spoke about in, in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and are lacking the glory of God, right? We, we are sinners by birth, we're sinners by choice. We continually create systems that seek to find the fullness of God apart from the presence of God. We continually look to things that aren't God to be for us what only God can be, to do for us what only God can do, right? So God gave us this perfect law, but the tool was weakened, right? So instead, what did he do? By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now we'll get into this, but just notice how carefully he words this. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful flesh. There was nothing sinful about him. But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he came for sin, right? He, he came in order to die as a substitute. As, as a fee, uh, um, 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? He, he wasn't sinful, but he came for sin. And, and when he died on the cross under the weight of our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. By coming under our condemnation, he condemns sin in the flesh. And this is the phrase I want to focus on. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In order that the righteous requirement of the law, now think the Ten Commandments, right? And if you haven't thought about the Ten Commandments in a while, Um, it might be worth going back and looking at them because I'm guaranteeing you've broken every single one of them, let alone the hundreds of other commandments that are in the Old Testament, right? In order that the righteous requirement of the law that you could never keep on your own might be fulfilled in us. Now, notice it doesn't say that it might be obeyed by us. It doesn't say that it might justify us. It doesn't even say that it might no longer condemn us as if the goal were simply to get out of condemnation that it might be fulfilled by us. Here's where it's very important to remind you that the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws around it are not first a set of rules. They are a set of rules, but they are not first a set of rules. They are first a covenant. The Mosaic law is an agreement, a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. And in this covenant are all the rules. 
It is first an agreement. And in that agreement, when you look at Exodus uh, um, uh, 18, 19, 20, when you look in that context, the agreement says this, if you obey this covenant, you'll be blessed. And if you disobey this covenant, you'll be cursed. The Mosaic law is first an agreement, a covenant that offers blessing for those who obey and a curse for those who break it, right? It is not first a set of rules, it is first an agreement. Now here's the thing, that covenant couldn't be fulfilled by any Jewish person ever born, right? Because every single person born, was, was they all have sinned and are lacking the glory of God. Um, we, we all, even our good works are motivated by, by self-righteous, uh, self-glorifying motivations, right? The law made demands we couldn't fulfill, but Christ could. Because he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he himself was not sinful. He was the first Jewish man to ever completely fulfill the law. And when he did, he earned its blessing. The blessing that was promised in this covenant was finally earned by Christ. And when he died, it tells us that he died under the curse of the law. Not because he had earned the curse, but because he was dying as a substitute to redeem those who would believe in him. And when he rose again, he rose in in the full glory and righteousness and blessing that comes from having obeyed the law. He died under its curse so that we could stand in its blessing. A blessing we could never claim or earn on our own. He fulfilled the contract. He fulfilled the covenant. And in doing so, he earned its blessing. The Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other laws are fulfilled. The covenant is fulfilled. It has already been paid. When we study it now, it is no longer a, 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 anything that has anything to offer us by way of reward or anything that has any threat to us by way of condemnation. It, it is a covenant fulfilled. And its blessing has already and claimed. It is still good. It is still righteous. It is still holy. We're going to get into that, right? But what I want you to catch at this point is that it has served its function. This is the absolute beauty of this doctrine that we've been talking about so much and, and is the key theme of this next chapter. This, this idea, this, this word imputation. Crediting. Imputation. If you've believed in Jesus, if you've trusted in Christ. You are not just innocent. You are not just forgiven of your sins. You are covered in the very righteousness of God. You are covered in the very active obedience of Jesus. You are covered in the blessing of the law. The blessing you could never earn on your own. In Christ, we are the fulfillment of the law. We stand under its blessing, not its curse. We don't come to the law to be measured. We don't come to the law to prove ourselves or improve ourselves or to fix ourselves. We come as those who are the fulfillment of the law who will now walk in accord with it to glorify the God who saved us. We're going to talk more about this as we move forward. But what Paul is saying here is that this was the purpose of the law. Not to compete with grace but to serve grace, to prepare the way for grace. 
to, to have all of its demands satisfied by Christ and then to have all of its blessing released in grace to those who would come to Christ in faith. The blessing has been earned and now it has been freely given by grace alone through faith alone. Now Paul's going to drive home this point by looking at two all-stars in Jewish history, Abraham and David. Take a look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So he starts with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Now you can't start any higher than that, right? He is the wellspring of all blessing. God showed up to Abraham and basically said, I'm going to bless the entire world through you and through your offspring. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. They all looked back to Abraham as the wellspring of blessing. You could find no greater giant on the horizon. And they would have been, yeah. What about Abraham? That's a good question. Point in fact, right? Checkmate, because Abraham was faithful. Abraham was obedient. Abraham was righteous in his generation as no other man was righteous. He left Ur of the Chaldees. When God said, hey, I want you to walk this direction, he did it. He grabbed his whole household and he walked. And as he was walking, God kept promising, I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you a son. And God waited until he was 99 years old. And Abraham stayed faithful. And then when Isaac, that son of promise, was a teenager, and God said to Abraham, I want you to take this son, this son in whom you delight, and I want you to take him up to the top of this mountain and sacrifice him. Abraham did it. Now, God intervened at the last moment. Of course, Isaac was not sacrificed, but Abraham was put to the test and he passed. He was willing to give up his greatest treasure to honor his greater God, right? Abraham, what would Abraham find according to the flesh? He was a man rich in good works. He was a man rich in honor. He was a man weighty in character. Now, Paul's being incredibly intentional here by starting with Abraham. See, it'd be a a totally different situation if he had started with somebody like Rahab. Rahab, if he said, you know, Rahab was justified by grace through faith and faith alone, they would have been like, of course she was. Rahab, if you don't know, was was a a Gentile who lived in Jericho. She was a prostitute um, and and, uh, a woman who, who the Jews would have by nature thought of as them and looked down on. And yet when the spies, the Israeli spies, came into Jericho to check it out, she gave them safe harbor. She had no reason to do so. This is not a woman who had ever been treated well by men. This is not a woman who who would have had any reason or inclination to trust strange men, and yet she trusted their God. And because she trusted their God, she invited them in, she gave them safe harbor, and then she sent them out another way that they might not be killed. If you were to say Rahab, was, was, was justified by grace through faith and faith alone, the Jewish person would have been like, well, of course she was, because that's all she had. But to say Abraham? Abraham? Abraham, who was rich in good works and honor? Abraham, who, who was the embodiment of what we're all aspiring to be? Abraham? Take a look at verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
This is a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, the Greek version, the, the Septuagint version, but, but, but it's a quote from, from Genesis 15, before Isaac was even born. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. That's that word imputation. It was imputed to him, credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Maybe Abraham had something he could boast about in front of men. But Paul's like he had nothing that he could boast about before God. Abraham was justified by grace alone, through faith alone. Abraham was a man of great works and obedience, but he didn't get a fast pass into the kingdom of God. He had to enter through the same humble gate of grace that everyone else also has to enter through. Abraham, as rich as he was. Paul explains the logic in verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. Now, this is just common sense, y'all. If you, you know, at work every, every week or two weeks or every month, if you went into your boss's office and your boss was like, hey, I've got a gift for you, and, and, and gave you a little box, you know, with a little, little bow on it, and inside was your paycheck, you might be a little annoyed, right? You, you might be like, Will you stop pretending that you're giving me a gift? This is my due. This is my right. This is my wage. Because when you work, you indebt the one you work for. When you labor, you put the person you're working for in a place of indebtedness where they owe you. And when they pay you, you're not simply receiving the money that is your due. You are receiving the honor that says your labor is worthy of its wage. You are receiving the affirmation that yes, indeed, you have indebted the other. You owe me. You'd be insult insulted if your boss gave you a check every week and acted like it was a gift. This is common sense with profound implications. Earning and believing are competing paradigms. This is no abstract theological debate. Where you put your boast is of critical importance. Because you're either going to indebt God to you or you're going to indebt yourself to God. You're either trusting your work that basically puts God on the line to give you what you want, to answer your prayers, to justify you and to make you right, or you're trusting grace undeserved love, unmerited favor, and simply trusting that God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Verse 5, incredibly beautiful verse and incredibly offensive. Verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To the him who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, imputed to him as righteousness. To the one who steps away from trying to earn. To the one who rejects this entire paradigm of proving myself, improving myself, strengthening myself, making myself better, becoming better and better, better version of me to indebt the world to me that I might deserve what I crave. To the one who says, I'm not going to work. 
I'm not going to get on the treadmill of self-improvement. I am not going to try to impress you or me or God. I'm going to rest. I'm not going to work. I'm going to rest. I've given up the paradigm of labor and working. I'm going to rest and I'm going to believe that God justifies the ungodly. I'm going to trust that even though the only thing I bring to my salvation is my sin, that I will still be received. Having been received, I will be covered. That I will be covered in the very righteousness of Christ. That I will receive the full blessing of the fullness of life. Because Christ has earned it on my behalf. I will get everything. By grace, through faith, that I could never get by working harder, doing better. So beautifully counterintuitive to him who steps away from his earning and performing and proving and wrestling and instead humbly steps into the welfare line of God's grace, bringing nothing but your need. Standing there with no boast, no pride, no garment of success, no good works or effort. Just standing there in your naked humility. And when asked, what do you have to offer? Your only response is, I am ungodly. Sin, that's what I have to offer. That's all I have to offer. And to hear in response, that's enough. Because the only thing I'm looking for is trust. The only thing I'm looking for is faith. You've come to the end of your self-deceit and your pretending and your performing and in humility standing before me simply to receive. To Him, God imputes righteousness. The very act of obedience of Christ, the full blessing of the law, You are covered in Christ. Abraham was a beggar for righteousness. And God, by grace, gave him that righteousness through faith. Paul is focused on Abraham, but but calls in David here as a supporting witness to his claim. It's the only time David appears in the paragraph. Uh, But it could be because of that principle. In the mouth of two witnesses, a matter is resolved. So Paul's like, hey, let's take a look at David as well. Take a look at verses 6 through 8. Just as David, this would have been King David, right? Another another giant on the horizon of Jewish history, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Right? So he quotes Psalm 32 here, saying, look, look, David himself sings this song in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, not those who don't have lawless deeds, not those who are perfect, not those who have improved themselves, not, no, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Those whose sins are covered, not those who don't have sins, but those whose sins are are atoned for and covered and propitiated through the saving work of Christ. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's that word impute. God won't impute your sin to you because it was imputed, it was credited to Christ. Who died as your substitute, as your hero under the weight of your cosmic treason, bearing the consequence of your sin and paying its price completely that when he rose, he might come.
cover you with his resurrection righteousness. David sang that song. Where is boasting? It is excluded. All boasting is excluded. All claims to superiority are silenced. How can there be us-them paradigms if everything good about us was given to us by grace through faith? But here's the rub, y'all. I just want to be honest about this, and I think uh, just kind of up front, here's, here's the rub. For us to put away our boasting means we have to put, put to death our pride. If we put away our boasting, it's going to feel like a piece of us is dying and we're going to hate it. We're going to hate it. If, if you have spent your entire life dedicating yourself to health, right? Working out, getting up, taking care of yourself. Man, you have eaten kale every day, right? And you're looking it over at this person and, 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 they, and they're eating ice cream 24 hours a day. And then God blesses them with greater health than you have. Those of you who have dedicated yourself to your work ethic. I work hard, right? I, I will work when everyone else gives up. I, and yet you see this guy who gets up at 10 a.m. every day, stumbling into success in ways you never could. Those of you who have dedicated yourself to knowledge, whether it's Bible knowledge or personal disciplines, dedicated yourself to having perfect kids in public. Listen, these are good things, but they're not God things. And when we try to build our identity on them, they will betray us. But for us to step away from our boast feels like we are giving up on an economy that we have invested our entire life in. This is the thing I've invested everything in to make me worthwhile. This is the thing I've invested everything in to make me lovable or respectable or worthy. This is the thing that is going to get people to look at me and admire me and tell me that I am okay. This is the thing. It is like admitting that your lifetime investment was in the wrong market. This is why it's so hard to step away from our boasting. Because it is our boast that makes us feel worthy of praise. It is our boast that makes us feel that we are na not naked and exposed. Because I'm clothed in this strength. I am clothed in this goodness. I am clothed in this thing that, that, is, that is mine. I've worked for it. I've invested in it. And it covers me. And it sets me apart. To step away from that, man, feels like stepping into death. And part of us screams against it because we want to pay back for our investment. I have worked so hard. It is my due. I deserve to be respected. I deserve to be loved. I deserve to be approved. I've worked when other people haven't. I've, and I it is my due. Our pride is our boast, and to step away from it feels like death because we felt, built our sense of worth upon it. Y'all, this is why Jesus said it was harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it was for a camel to, to pass through the eye of a needle. Because a successful rich man has clothed himself not only in money, but in the pride of success. 
It's not just about the money. It's never just about the money. It is about succeeding at the game where everyone else is failing. It is about achieving ways no one else achieves. It is about saying, I am better than you. And because I am, you owe me. And y'all need to recognize that the reason we do this with people is because we are subtly doing it with God. We are doing it with those created in the image of God because at the greatest depth of our being and our most existential crisis, we are doing it before God himself. You owe me. I have succeeded. I have achieved. Y'all, that has to die. Either your faith is going to kill your pride or your pride is going to kill your faith because those two boasts cannot coexist. You can't boast in grace and boast in your pride at the same time. It cannot be faith plus works. Faith plus obedience. Faith plus anything. You can't rest in the work of Christ while you're still on the treadmill trying to rest in your own work. To receive justification, you need to get off your high horse. And you need to join the line for welfare. You have to admit before God and to yourself that the only thing you bring to your salvation is your need. And that's all you need to bring. Listen to me. The path back to God is ridiculously short. You don't have to climb the mountain of self-improvement. You simply have to fall to your knees and receive the gift of grace in humble faith. And when you do, oh, the glory of that grace. You set aside the weight of self-improvement, the weight of self-glory, the weight of, of self-justifying. When you just set all of those aside, because these things that you're clothing yourself with don't lift you up. They weigh you down when you take those off and you simply receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, the freedom, the glory, and the joy. It is my prayer during this strange time that possibly people's hearts will be more open and more receptive to this counterintuitive invitation of grace.